Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz drummer Alvin Queen. From his home base in Switzerland, he opened up about his 2019 CD, OP, a tribute to Oscar Peterson, and talked about his experiences with this genius jazz pianist. So he was born in the Bronx, raised in Mount Vernon, and as a kid, he loved playing basketball. And one of those kids on the infamous 4th Street playground that he played with was the Academy Award winner Denzel Washington. In fact, his father, the elder D. Washington Sr., was the pastor at the First Church of God in Christ and was big in Alvin's life. He was introduced to jazz at an early age and was groomed as a prodigy on the kid and had a lot of experiences growing up. In fact, in 1963, he had a big night in his early jazz experience when John Coltrane was performing at Birdland, and Alvin happened to be on hand for the recording of the now-famous Live at Birdland album featuring the tune Afro Blue. Alvin Jones actually sat Alvin at the front table under the drums next to Alvin's wife. He's got the full story, and there is a lot of stories from this cat, so get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Okay, Alvin, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz, sir. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and let's hop right in here and talk about your latest CD, which is charting very well, which is a tribute to Oscar Peterson. Why did this project come about? What's so important about Oscar and your history as a musician? Well, Oscar Peterson, um, I never had any idea that I thought I would go to that extent, to go that high on on that level you know this is like louis armstrong it's like ella fitzgerald i had calls from norman grant also to do two concerts with ella fitzgerald in paris and germany but i was not available to do that oscar was always um you know everybody has a very raw rough attitude about oscar or his behavior whatever but oscar is more was more like a family man he was more like raised like i was raised and a family. So when I came in the group, we had a great under background because we had that same type of background going on. And uh, he was able to share with me many things that I respected about him. He told me, learn to respect yourself and people will come to your level to respect you. So what happened, it was one of my biggest events of my life on the behalf of Niels Henning Oster Pedersen because Niels made it possible for me to also be with Kenny Drew Sr., you see? And I started out there. And then I knew Oscar from 1983, but I, I, uh, I did not have that opportunity. And something came up. I was in um, Copenhagen, and we did a tribute. I did a tribute to Oscar Peterson, and I had the Danish musicians, and it was the Danish award that we won. That was two years ago. For some reason, this guy, uh, uh, Peter Lindhausen, uh, walked up to me during one of my last visits there last October, and he says, uh, we heard you successfully at the, the, the Danish awards. We would be very interested in doing that project. So I said, sure, I'd be glad to help you out on it. So then in the end, he agreed to do that project, and he provided me with the studio and equipment and finances and everything. And I put it together, and I said, this is a guy who I love, Oscar, I was very close to, and I dearly miss him. And why not just do all of Oscar Peterson's music that I performed while I was in the group with him for the three years that I was there. And that's how it, 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 it came along. 
And then what made the record successful is just that the three tracks, the three piano tracks, are just something I required and I asked the piano player to particularly do for me without the trio, and I inserted those tracks along with the the music that uh, we we put we played on the CD, uh, and it has been really very successful. I never had anything to travel that far, and it's and it's still up there. You see, it's for the for the love of Oscar and his family is very happy, and everybody's uh, happy around me. And uh, I think this thing will go further. I really think it will go further. You know, I have no doubt. So I want to go back to the beginnings of your life and how you got into music. I know that you were um, you were born in the Bronx and you relocated to Mount Vernon. Give me an idea of your childhood and how music became so important to you. Well, you know, I never thought that music was going to become that important. That's that's what see younger musicians they don't understand. See what happened? I grew up in a musical time zone and it was more like we had like Harlem. You had the white side of the railroad track and it had the black side. My brother was in elementary school. My brother's five years older than me and he joined the, the, the parade, the marching band and the school band under the direction of Neil Slater who's still around. I think he's in Texas or somewhere. So when I get old enough, I want to do that. So what happened was, um, I got old enough, and I, I took his drumsticks and beat them on the concrete and water tips down. And then I went and joined the school band in Malvern in New York. I remember that. And one Christmas, my mother took me shopping one Christmas. I'll never forget. And I looked up in the window, and I saw this little kid playing the drums up in the window. So I said, uh, how could I get up there? And because we were poor, my mother, you know, was welfare raising five kids. I said, how could I get up there? But I was a shoeshine kid at the time. I had a shoeshine box. And what happened was I went up there and I asked the guy, could I have a shine? That's when I met Mr. Andy Lalino, you see. And he said, you like drums? I said, yeah, I really like drums. He said, can I tell your mother to call me? So I had my mother call. At that time, it was $5 an hour for a lesson. And I think I took a certain amount of lessons and, my mother couldn't afford it anymore. So she said, Andy, I have to take Alvin out of school. So he says, well, Miss Queen, you you know, leave him here with me. And I ran coffee errands, you see, up and down coffee errands. And I painted and I different things around his office. And he gave me free drum lessons. But before that, what happened was the connection was unbelievable because in the black sections, we all – there were clubs. Malvern was four square miles with about ten jazz clubs. Okay, and in the summertime, the door was always open where you can hear music, or, or you heard music all the time. My father was a bar manager. Okay, I would listen to the music. You, I heard music. Ruth Brown, Mama Treat Your Daughter, Me. My mother played it in the house, and I lived next door to Mr. Peace's record shop. And I mean, it was just music all the time, and. What was really shocking that at the drum studio Mr. Lalino had, all the records that I practiced to at his studio, my father had in the record collection, or you heard it on the jukebox when you went to have ice cream or whatever, and you sat on the stoop and listened to it. You couldn't go in because it was a place for adult people, okay? So um, what 
really, you know, all the rest of the guys, we have Ray Williams and Gus, Gus, uh, Gus Williams and all of them, a lot of NBA basketball players came from there. Denzel Washington, you know, his father was the minister of the church where I went, you see? And Denzel Washington's mother was a beautician, and he, I remember him sweeping the hair up around there. And Denver went off to school. Most most of the guys who became successful, they they went out in the road. But I really never had no intentions. What had happened was the drummer didn't show up at one gig. It was a Friday night or something. I was about 11, 12 years old. And uh, his name was Jimmy Hill. And Jimmy Hill came went to my father. My father was a bar manager, says, uh, my father's nickname was Dead Eye. Dead Eye, can we use the kid? He said, use the kid for what? And he says, uh, Alvin can help us out because it's the weekend. So he said, look, come on, go to the house with me. And we'll talk to Alvin's parents, uh, Alvin's mother, and see what he can do. So I was in the house, a little kid, you know, short pants and suspenders on and everything. I don't know, watching TV or doing something. And they said, Alvin, come in here. So I said, I came in there. I said, yeah. He says, look, Mr. Hill has a problem. Do you think you can help him? I said, Dad, if there's any music in your record collection, I know the music. I probably can help him. So at that time, you needed a chaperone because anywhere that was serving alcohol or food, you had to have somebody be with an adult to go in there, you see? So my father said, go put your little suit on and tie and come back. And... He came back. They took me down to the club. I could barely reach the pedals on the drums and stuff. And I, that's where my success came from. It started with, it started within there. And Marvern was only, I think, 20, 30 miles outside of New York. So then slowly people began to hear. I began to work with uh, uh, Duke Washington. He used to be a guy. He used to play three horns. And then I also worked with Tiny Grimes, you see. But at that time... King Curtis, all of them, I didn't know who they really were. You know, Big Maybell and things like that. And my father, at that time, the black people were wearing processes, like Oscar Peterson and Nat King Cole. They straightened their hair. So they had a barbershop down in Harlem where Sugar Ray Robinson, the famous boxer, had a process place where black people were going to get their hair done. So my father had to go every one or two weeks to go down there to have his hair done. And I said, uh, Dad, could I go? Could I go? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would go down there because I knew he was going to the Apollo Theater. He always could tell me, he said, I'm going to catch a show before we go back uptown. I know your mother ain't going to like this, but I'm going to catch this show. And that's when I went to the Apollo Theater and I saw Art Blakey and the Jazz Messages. I saw John Coltrane do my favorite things. And at that time, they had Reuben Phillips' big band. I saw Arthur Prystock. I saw Stevie Wonder when he was a kid. I saw Michael Jackson, Jackson 5. The whole Motown thing was going on at that time. So what had happened was then I started getting different calls. I got a call. One of my first calls was Wild Bill Davis, the organ trio, and we would play Gracie Belmont Club in Atlantic City, Okay. And then the second call I got was from um, Ruth Brown. It wasn't Ruth Brown, Don Pullen. Don Pullen was playing Hammond organ at the time. And I joined Don Pullen's band at the, at the age of 15. But now to go back a little bit to 1962, I believe it was, 
Andy Lalino, who owned the drum studio, took me down to Samuel Lano's drum show down at uh, 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 Roseland in, in Manhattan, and that's where I met the likes of Elvin Jones. Okay? And then after Elvin, Elvin Jones, they had the Gretsch drum night. This is where it really took, took toll. When they had the Gretsch drum night, Andy Lalino told me to get dressed and took me down there. I was 11, 12 years old. And that's when Elvin remembered me, and Elvin said, that's my son, that's my son. He kept Ed Thickpen, Ed all the drummers away from me. That night was, was really history because at that time, I believe it was Red Garland or Paul Chambers played piano and bass, and they opened it up for the drummers, Gretsch drum night, okay? And they had three or four drum sets across the stage with Mel Lewis and Charlie Pacip, Art Blakey, Max Roach, and Elvin Jones. Nothing but drums. And that's when Elvin put, they put me up on the stage, and I was more like the child prodigy the same time when Tony Williams came in, something like that. And then I remember Pee Wee Marquette used to bother me and said, leave the, leave the musicians alone, go sit down, boy, go sit down. They had a place called a peanut gallery. And Elvin said, that's my son, you, you leave him alone. You know, Elvin would always protect me. And from that thing, from that event, it led to I was more like a boy wonder. So somebody wanted to do a record. And Andy Lalino hired Joe Newman as the musical director. Okay? Uh, Joe Newman hired Zoot Sims as the tenor saxophone player. Art Davis was a bass. Hank Jones played half of the record because he was working for NBC, and he got Harold Mayburn. That's, I met Harold Mayburn when he was 22 or 25 years old. Okay? This record was never released. It went to Orrin Keep News at Riverside, and that's the last time I heard about, about that. Okay, so that was done. So the big night was, I was there when um, John Coltrane met Alice Coltrane, Alice McLeod. Alice was, matter of fact, in every club in New York, they had two bands. They had the opening act, and they had the featured act, and they would start at 9 to 3 in the morning. Okay? And... The first band was on was Terry Gibbs Quartet, and Alice McLeod was playing piano with Terry Gibbs at the time. And the second act was John Coltrane. I was there when they did that. They recorded live at Birdland. That was March 1963, I believe it. And I was sitting there at the table with Elvin Jones and his wife, and Elvin, for some reason, said, the kid has got to learn, the kid has got to learn. He picked me up and he put me behind the drums with John Coltrane. And I remember John Coltrane growling, come on, Elvin, get the kid, get the kid. I mean, it was, that was the biggest thrill of my life, was th those were the opening doors to everything. Because I knew Eric Dolphy, Wes Montgomery, they were ordinary people. It was just like a place full of musicians. I never knew who they was until I went and looked back through my father's record collection and said, Dad, this man here had a bump on his head. I know who that is, and it was Eric Dolphy, you see? Mm -hmm. So it was very, I mean, my career has been very interested, and uh, that's how I really got started in it as the Boy Wonder. So, you know, I, I know all the musicians, and I changed my style of playing because of Elvin Jones. You know, when, when Elvin Jones, Tony Williams came on the scene, the drummer was freer to, to open up more, you see? Before that, the drummer was, was about keeping time. You couldn't, you know, they used to scream and holler at me, stop dropping all those bombs and keep the time, keep the tempo. 
And I said, when are you going to give me a drum solo? When you play good time. So sometimes we get one drum, drum solo a night for one minute or something, you know. But uh, it, it, the turnaround of the whole musical thing, I was in the middle of that to see it. That's wonderful, man. Did you always feel like you were born for the stage? I mean, you obviously was a prodigy. This was in your blood. Was this something that you knew at that point early on you were destined for? No, because the whole thing about it, you have gifted and you have, you have see, you have musicians, but then you have gifted, you see? And Tony Williams is one of those gifted kind, you see? And when Tony Williams came out, I was there. I saw them at Birdland with Miles. And I remember Buddy Rich used to say, yeah, yeah, flounder, flounder, lightweight. Because Buddy loved Arden Elvin, you see? And Buddy used to love Papa Joe Jones. You know, it was like a spiritual vibration. It's like John Coltrane. It's like, you know, he was making a speech, like a Martin Luther King or something. It's like you can't copy that speech. It doesn't come out the same way, you see? You have to work hard at that. And, you know, just, some people are really gifted and others uh, are not. You know, I can walk into a club. If I can hear a kid, if he's 15 or 16, I said, this dude's got it right there. Because there's a pattern within the musical structure which you follow. You can't change music. You grow off of the pattern of it, you see, off of the feeling of it. It's like dances. You can't tell somebody to to dance if they're, if, if they're not danceable, if it's not there. So it's just that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's done to a certain degree. I call it a spirituality, and I believe I was just gifted from this. You know, the guy at the drum studio said, Alvin, you had it when you came to me. I just showed you the way to use it. You see? It's very interesting. Absolutely. So you've been around amazing musicians. Just, just the stories you've orchestrated at this point are unbelievable. But I want to know this. What teachers have you had in your life that, that have really resounded in your head up to this day, that have really given you good advice? Everyone. Every, uh, every older one that I have approached. It used to be a guy, Steve Harvitt and Amon and all of them, and also Benny Golson's son. He, he died, but his name was Reggie Golson. And in Birdland, they had drum tables where they would rent the drum table and they had a peanut gallery. I never knocked one drummer or the other. I, you know, Chico Hamilton, I would see Chico, Elvin, uh, Mel Lewis, uh, Philly Joe, every, everybody had something to give me, you see? And I was, I was that type of the kid, I was the type, I want to absorb something. I might not like your style, but there's something there. You see what I'm talking about? And that's what it was. What it's all about. It's like you can call me to play for Singer, or you can call me to play for John Coltrane. Those are two different things. So that means you have to approach it the way that it's required. That's why you have disagreements with band leaders and musicians. That's why. You see, it's not. Don't give me what you want. Give me what I need. You see. Yeah. So that means you have to work with every situation which makes you experience to reach out and try to accommodate. You see, singers, you start off with brushes, and they'll tell you on the bridge, swing me there. And, Queen, once we get into this tune, sticks all the way. You got the message. You know it because you've, you've experienced that. You see? 
And that experience I learned in the church, and that experience I learned on the bandstand by somebody screaming and hollering. <laughs> you see? <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, life is, you know, you have to open up your mind. And, you you know, I, John Coltrane, I love him, I respect him, but John Coltrane played the boogie-woogie, him and Johnny Griffin and Randy Weston. I have records with Randy Weston and Johnny Griffin playing the boogie-woogie. There's a school, there's a passage you have to go through, you see? Otherwise, the music turns into a race or, or it sounds like a bunch of people fighting, you see? Yeah. So it's, it's just that you have all kinds, and always find an idol. When you find an idol, you imitate that idol, and you like that sign of that idol. When you hear Lester Young, you hear Stan Getz. You see? Yeah. You go on, yeah. and you you, you got to find out how did you, you know, when you hear Phil Woods, you hear Charlie Parker. You hear, you got to be influenced by somebody. You see? Yeah. And my biggest influence was Elvin Jones, uh, Art Blakey, and Matt Roach. That was my biggest influence. But when you hear me with Oscar Peterson, and when you hear me with Clark Terry, and you hear me with Harry Sweets Edison and Lockjaw Davis, when I first came to Europe, I had to learn all over again. That style of playing, I lost that. I went, I went Elvin Jones. I went, wow. <laughs> so when I got to Europe, I met this guy, Jimmy Woody, who had been here, and he was with Duke Ellington for so many years. He came 64 or whatever, okay? And then I was screamed and hollered. I worked with Dolo Coker, Harry Sweet Edison, Plas Johnson, and the guy I got on my back was John Collins because I, I, it was hard for me to play with a strumming guitar. I never played with that. It was too constructive. But that's what they were telling me all about. I saw that in New York when I was there at the Metropole. I used to go see Cozy Cole, Gene Cooper, uh, Jonah Jones, Red Novel. They were all 12 noon in the window of the Metropole playing, you see. And I always wanted to play with the great. But see, what happened was the 4-4 four, four beat on the bass drum was was the heart pulse for the for for the older guys. And then when Kenny Clark came in the business, the bebop started, the bass drum was made for the accents. You see? But the bass drum never stopped. Art Blakey and Elvin, there was always a light four behind it. You see? If you heard Max Roach and you heard uh, uh Buddy Rich had a very big foot, loud foot, you see? And you heard it and Ed Thickpen. Me and Ed had a conversation about that once. He said, Man don't you think uh, uh, that I play Queen? Don't you think I play the bass drum too often? What I said, you grew up with that. He was in love with Denzel Best, Chick Webb, you see? So the whole fundamental of the thing is it, it's not about John Coltrane or Miles Davis. It didn't start there. That, that was way before that. So when these guys came over here, they said, get Alvin Queen, get the kid. And I had to learn to chop wood and play shuffles and backbeats. I had to play all that, revive it again. So then after I revived it, Kenny Clark had a heart attack in Paris. And then a lot of times they said, well, who could you get? And then Pierre Michelot was a very good friend of mine, the bass player. He said, get Queen. And that's how I began to get hooked up with Lou Levy, Christian Eskel Day with Strings, and I did a couple of records on, on Verb for the French label. But... Um, that's how these. That's how it. How it. How it went together. So I have two 
two minds. I see things the modern way, and I see things the older way. You see? Yeah. You know, I heard some years back somebody say that Miles Davis always picked the drummer first for the band. He found that as the instrumental core of what he would go after. And I want you to comment on that, how important the drummer is in the centerpiece of what we know as jazz music. Well, see, the whole thing about the drummer, the drummer gives the pulse and the feeling. Nobody hires just the drummer. You understand what I'm talking about? People call me not to read or not to write or not to, to do any of that. They call me to make it feel good. You see? So I'm supposed to be well experienced at knowing how to make it feel good. And when you see certain things, is it gets to a certain point where, where you you know you like George Coleman always told me, he said, "Man, when I call you Queen to do a gig, I can't tell you what to play behind me. You understand? But I want you to. It's the same as Oscar Peterson would say." I don't need to hire Ed Thigpen. I don't need to hire Bobby Durham. You understand? I hired Alvin Quinn. Okay? What are you going to bring to this table to make this say more than what it's saying? You see? Yeah. It's like donating. You know, you, you, why would you hire a guy in a business who's going to pull a business down? You will always hire a guy who's going to be more creative to pull the business up. You see, and that foundation, what a good example is when you had Miles Davis and you had Tony Williams and you had Ron Carter, okay? Ron Carter played so much anchoring baseline, Tony was free to float around anywhere he wanted to go. The time was there. That's, that's a team, you see? It's a team the same as Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison. That was a team. <laughs> you see? Yeah. And when you say the three sounds, Bill Dowdy, and that's a team. You see, they're all musicians. We love each other, but that doesn't mean we can perform with each other. You see? Yeah. It's the approach, yeah. how you go, and it's the feeling what you're looking for to make it. The record is so successful, the Oscar Peterson record now, is because how many people are playing in that format? You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. And people listen and they say, wow, finally there's something I can hear I like. You see, people, people are waiting. Those people are not dead. They're waiting. They have a, a jazz heart club of France here in Europe, all over France. They got about 20, 20 clubs. But what happened was these guys used to organize concerts for Eleanor Jacquet and Harry Sweet Edison, Joe Newman, and all of them, and they used to bring big bands and everything. But everybody think, whatever happened to them? They're not dead. If you provide the right music for them, they will come out. They will, they will, they will bring you so that you can play a concert in their city. You see? But you can't put John Coltrane there with Eleanor Jarquette. It don't work. <laughs> you see? Yeah. You know, yeah. so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta understand the people that want music. This record, which you hear that I did, uh, the tribute to Oscar Peterson, I put that together in two weeks. You see, yeah. I didn't need four months in the studio. Just, I mean, just play. 
just play. In two weeks, I put that together. I put the cover together. I went to the photograph, took the pictures, and boom, there it is. You see? Yeah. Because it's Absolutely. real. It's real. It's like, you know, the people, always remember the people who you're dealing with. They don't speak Chinese. So if they, don't, if they haven't studied the language, when, they, when the guy finishes his speech in Chinese, they just sit there and look at him. Because there's no connection. <laughs> you see? Yeah. My audience is about the feeling first. Once you get the audience, the people will follow you. You see? That's the that's the basic of the the, the the basic of the whole thing. I can go out there and play all the all the drum solos and I can go out there and and, and get crazy and you can play off and go on. you probably well, what am I doing? Who who who's you know, it's like why is the musicians we're great we're all having fun, but we don't even want to understand what the hell is going on up here. <laughs> yep. Amen. You see? So yeah. that's what my head is. My head is my customers are first. You see? And the customers will go anywhere with you if you introduce them or give them a feeling to follow. You see? And the whole thing about it, I used to pat my feet all the time. I listen to records. I was just listening to last night Gerald Wilson and the Big Band. And then I was listening to Les, McC Les McCann. Then I was listening to Jimmy Barnes, bass player with Lou Rawls. I was listening to the sound of these instruments. I was listening to the pulse, the feeling of the instrument, because I will never forget what I came through. You see? And that's what I t It's not the many notes you play. It's how relaxed you are and how much space is between the notes. That's what makes the music. You see? Think of a kid... If you slow it down, think of a kid skipping along up and down the street. And think of the basic of the beat under that kid. He's not in a rush. He's taking his time, eating his candy, going home. You see? That's what I want. You see? So that's what music is, is, is to me, you know. Yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful analogy. <laughs> you know, you've done such a wonderful job of orchestrating a beautiful jazz tale. And I have one last question for you, and uh -huh. it's this. Everyone has a perception of you, the world at large, your family, your friends, your fans, but you know who you are best. Tell me, who do you think you are? Uh, I'll tell you this. I said to Oscar Peterson one time, Oscar, you are a genius. He said, come in the room and shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down. He says, I am only an ordinary piano player. People say that I'm a genius. I'm only a decent human being would play the piano. Okay? I got recognition and I got success, and that is a core category where people put you in. I can sit with anybody. The best person I could sit with is a bum or homeless person in the street. Because they're real, man. They're going to give me something real. You see? And that's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. I never saw success. And I go back and I look at my biography. I look at everything. And I don't believe, can one person do that? You see? Can one person do that? Because I never had any intentions of doing that. I had intentions. See, when you have the right attitude and you don't let your ego direct you. Your ego will only destroy you. If you open up 
and everybody, everybody's not out there to hurt you, you see? And you, I have very good friends as far as Gary Peacock. I don't care you can name them. They're good friends of mine, you see? And that's the they they are there. They say, hey, they can feel you're ready for whatever they got to offer. They can feel that, you see? And the most important thing is to keep an open mind and, and, and go straight ahead. And don't, don't worry about people. You got people who are going to say things, and you got, you know, you have critics what's going to criticize you. Most of them, a lot of them to me are frustrated musicians, you see? And sometimes I don't even pay attention to them because, uh, you know, they, they, they're, the, they're in the business to criticize. I mean, that's a job I couldn't have. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so it's so just that, you know, you just got to go straight ahead and, and keep your head up. And, you know, I'm waiting for younger people who's more open up to what I got to say, and don't be in a rush to go forward. Don't be in a rush. You can't recreate music. Music has always been there, you know? I have people right now, they say, play, play standard tunes are obsolete, or standard tunes are this, or standard tunes are that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are you going to play together if you don't have a band? You understand? Yeah. I can get musicians together and have a dinner, over dinner, discuss two sets of music and go out and play it. And people say, boy, y'all sound great. How long you been together? Just tonight. You see? And that's because these guys are professional enough to know the all-American standard book. And they say standard tune. There's no, I don't call them jazz standard tunes. They're all jazz standard tunes come from American Broadway shows and movie themes. That's what the standard tune's all about. It's just put into this feeling. That's what that... I came up at a time when you couldn't do your own music. Every album you saw, My Fair Lady, My Favorite Things, uh, 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 all, all of those major titles, Gone with the Wind, all of those, Shelley Manholm, My Fair Lady, whatever, all those titles you saw were Broadway show tunes, you see? Mm-hmm. And most of it was cocktail lounge tunes, you know, for you had to play for the listening public. And then what they would do is they would allow you to play your music, you see? When when Odd Blakey did Moaning, they trusted, trusted Benny Golson, he did Blues March, he started writing Horror Silver. When I was in Horror Silver's band 1969, Randy Brecker, Benny Maupin, and John B. Williams was in the band, and then Horace was allowed from Blue Note Records to write all his music. That's what he did. You see? You make one hit, then they give you the right away. Just keep writing. You see? The standard book, there's, there's you know, uh, I, there's every standard tune I know, and I don't play piano, so you figure it out. You see? Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've worked with uh, J. McShann, I may work with J. McShann. I work with uh, uh, all the older guys, all the older guys I work with. And I learned a lot on the bandstand. Red Richards, hey, Queen, yeah, man, this one back here, this is old rocking chair. You don't know this one. I said, go ahead and play it. And then he plays it. I've heard the tune before somewhere. But it shows you. You know, it's, it's a magnet brain, which you take it in. Then, if there's a tune, I did a tune once. I did a gig with Eddie Eddie Henderson, and I said, "This is weird." We get to this party. He said, "No, no, no, Queen, no, no, no. extend it." 
extended another 16 bars, then we're back at one. Wow, here we go. You see? So it's just, there's always guidance there. There's always guidance there, and you got to be have an open mind for that. You see? Absolutely. That's a beautiful answer. Alvin, thank you for opening up. This was unbelievably illuminating. Thank you for what you do for jazz, and good luck with the album. And thank you very much for having me. Okay? Absolutely. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Switzerland, the Bronx, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Alvin for his time, his music, and all of that absolute cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.